in all the different dog disciplines, you have handlers and you have trainers. And in the sheepdog world, there are very few who do a really great job of training sheepdogs. Today, we get the chance to talk to Joni Titchen, who's one of the top sheepdog trainers in North America. So I can't wait to get started. This is going to be a very informative talk on the art of sheepdog training. You are listening to The Kathy Keats Show, where we talk about dogs, sport, and life. Welcome to the 11th episode. I'm so excited. I'm here with Joni Titchen, and we are going to have a great conversation about training youngsters. So thank you for joining me here, Joni, and I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks. I look forward to it. I have so loved and respected your work over the years. And I always loved how quiet you were and how well your dogs understood the job. Your videos, they are so amazing of the work that your dogs do and the natural work that you're putting into them all the time and making them think. And that's what I think a lot of people don't understand. They keep trying to command the dogs to learn. And and I think you've got such an imperative element of dog training. There's what I've learned and I try to now I'm trying to teach people, which has been really tricky because I'm a field trainer, which is very different than the people that just want a black and white answer that are that brain. You know, I'm not yeah. up on all that, but I've learned that breaking down what I, what things feel like to put it into a thing for people to find has really been a challenge for me, but it's also been fun to try to learn that. But, but um, most of the time with the dogs, there's just a feel that I want. And so um, boy, it's a, it's a, it's a different thing being a field trainer versus somebody that's just going to, you know, wants a black and white answer. Well, it was funny when I first came into sheepdogging, I came from the agility world and I've been a fairly analytical sports person yeah. my whole life, right? Okay. That, there's the brain that I'm talking about. I've had to learn how to work with the analytical brain. Yeah, absolutely. And that was what the hardest transition for me was learning to feel it. Now, luckily, I'd been at sport at a high enough level. I got that that was a place you were working towards getting. But man, when you know you, you start as a novice and someone says, okay, tell your dog to lie down and you do. And the dog doesn't lie down. They say, it's okay, let it go this time. And you're like, why? Yeah, that, that's <laughs> the stuff. But that's having that eye for knowing when to let something go to gain another thing. And that's a really tricky place, but yeah. I explain to people when you're telling them, you need them to stop on the first stop every time and then you let one go and they're like, wait a minute. <laughs> now, a lot of that will be because of your livestock background because your dogs do so much real work. Yes. Right? So yes. let's start with that. You are known for being an outstanding trainer and young dog trainer particularly too. So what's your philosophy when you're thinking of training a young dog? Because I know work is such a big part of what you're thinking about. You know, in the early days, we got dogs on the ranch to help us. And we had a lot of work to do. And then that, of course, evolved into somebody saying, you know, you really should show your dogs. And that, that's kind of the direction I went at that time. In the early days, we were trying to make a ranch work that there was no way to pencil. and. I ended up training and selling some dogs to help us along to pay for the ranch. And that's um, funny. The real work made really nice trial dogs. So what I did is I ended up going on and trying to refine the training of the ranch dogs to make them a little more precise. And I had been in the horse world before that. So I've always sort of been a trainer at heart and 
I would say that I was a field person. I was lousy in school. Like I couldn't even hardly do school. So all I could think about was writing and writing for trainers and learning things and getting a feel. And I would go to bed at night and thinking about the feel of having them soft in my hands and that kind of thing. 1990 was my first clinic I ever went to, the cow dog clinic, which is pretty funny, but straight cow dog stuff. Yeah. And I'm just going to tell you, so I was really struggling with the dogs. Um, let's see, in maybe 1999, 2000, mm-hmm. uh, I was going to a horse clinic and I was just going there for uh, to get away from I don't know, some of the struggles that I was having maybe with the dogs. So I was going back to the horses a little, but I was pretty much into the dogs by the the late 1990s. But anyway, so a friend of mine, to prepare me for the horse clinic we were going to, she said to get Ray Hunt's Think Harmony with Horses and be Mm -hmm. ready for the guy that was coming. He basically taught off of that theory. And um, I, I knew I wanted something different than I was doing, but I just couldn't, I couldn't find it. And I was reading the book and all of a sudden um, I just changed in the preface. I I changed um, the horse and I put dog in it. And all of a sudden I was like, whoa, you know, and it really set me off on a thing where really all I've got to do is help them find what I want from them by making the thing that I don't want from them harder and the thing I do very easy for them to find. And I started to lessen the rules when I was training to one at a time and making it very simple for them to find. And once they would get one rule really well, then I would add another rule. And I hate to say rule so tightly because I'm sure a rule is just a term, but it's not, I'm not super strict with it in every situation. Like, you know, sometimes you have to give things up to gain mm-hmm. and knowing that by a feel and being able to read your dog is, um, is, a, is just a, a really nice ability. And I feel like I've been blessed to do that. And I, I had that early on. And um, I really feel like that's kind of helped me as being able to read the young dogs. What you said there was so cool. And actually it leads into a bunch of the things I wanted to ask you about, because one of the things I think is really interesting is a lot of people come from the horse world and really get training stock dogs. And in fact, the horse world is also added a lot to a lot of other dog sports like agility, such as jumping. One thing you said, we were actually just quickly talking on Facebook the other day, and this idea of training progressively and training in tiny steps is so important. And you talked about you had a young dog working a single, and you said you were looking for the dog to roll over more. And I asked you about that because the phrase I might use might be opening the shoulder, but basically using the rear end to turn a little better and not being forward and off balance, basically. It's so funny because I have a picture in my mind what I like them to look like. Now, here's a funny little thing. So every dog can't look like that. Like if I get a picture in my mind of that they're going to sit down and really come over himself, um, the next dog might not have the ability to do that. Right. And I've had people come, you know, for help and they want to teach their dogs the better turns. And I have kind of ways that I work on that. Right. And I have to tell them that your dog is really not made or really not that type dog. And so even if we can get him to come over, that's going to help the turns and it's going to help the feel on the stock. But they may not have that same look as mine. So I start to realize each dog, if they're giving me their all and they're coming across the best they can and it's effective, I'm happy with that. 
it is fun when you get one that looks cool doing it. I mean, that's just an extra little piece. I love that. It kind of, I'll have that look on my face like you have right now, that smile when I see <laughs> yeah. him do it. I can't help it, you know, because yeah. it looks, and they're having so much fun doing it too. Some dogs it's real easy for. Mm-hmm. I love a pretty turn in the dogs, um, but I also like an effective turn. I've had some dogs that weren't that stylish and didn't get down, but still by helping them to come over themselves the best that they can, it's really made it easier on their stock handling. What I have found to be true is that I hear people a lot say they need square flanks or they need pushed off the sheep. See, those are terms that I really don't like. I like the term a correct flank. And here's the cool thing about this is that there's 4,000 different roads to the same place. But for me, what I like is a dog, if a dog comes over themselves and stays in the track that they're in, 95% of the time, they're going to have the right feel on the stock. I don't want them to let go of um, their hold on the stock. I don't want them to disengage at all. I just want them to come over themselves on a direction. And I usually say it's only the first move. Right. And if you work on feel with the dogs, after the first move, the dog can find where they need to be. As long as their first move isn't a step forward. If they put a step forward in the flank, then the pressure won't be necessarily where you need it to be and um, affect your stock wrong. So what I like them to do is just come across one move and then start to find where they need to be. And that's another little series of things I help them find by putting them there. I like to help the dog get to where they need to be so that they can find the right feel. So are you doing that with a certain type of stock or a certain type of space or is there different ways that you do that? I do a million different. I have a tool pack that's crazy. Like the other day when you watched the single video, that particular pup, I'm wanting to pay attention to the heads because he's happy to fall in on the, on the hip of the first sheep and not get over to the head. Right. So what I like to do with a pup like that right off is get them looking for the head. And so a lot of times I'll play game with a single sheep and I really, I'm very blessed to be able to have the ability to get fresh, fresh stock here. And I feel like that's a big part of why my dogs learn as much as I do. I see people put, well, you need dog broke sheep. Well, I suppose if you're green, you know, and you don't have timing and positioning, I don't think about it anymore. I just go. So Fresh stock is no problem for me. I actually, that makes me, that makes my day. The day that I get, my husband says, I wish you were excited about me like you are when you get fresh sheep. (laughs) (laughs) And he laughs and he knows I actually love him a lot. But anyway, he's like, I know you're going to be busy today. You've got fresh sheep. And I can't wait to throw one out on the dog that needs to find the head or the dog that I want to get more in the game. One of the things with the young dogs, if their feet aren't moving and they aren't having a good time, they're not learning. Right. You get them slow and they're looking dull, you're not going anywhere. So, or for me, I found if, if things are looking a little dull and slow, um, I got to find something that's going to make them, you know, get in the game and want to learn. I really, I love it when my dogs, um, are looking to me because they're, they're thinking this is going to be, this is going to be fun today. And certainly I go over some stuff that they don't love and you can see them starting to go, you know, this is not them. So then I try to mix in things. I use it as bait to bring them back in the game and try to learn the things that I want from them. I I have a kind of a, a way of tricking them into my way of thinking. And that sounds kind of funny, 
I'm definitely firm with them and, you know, sure. and I have my expectations, but I often try to get them doing what I want without them realizing that um, I've tricked them into it. You know, that's so great. Everything you've said is just amazing because A, I love how creative you are because so much about training doesn't fit into a box. Like you've got to be creative with each individual dog. And the idea of balancing, we do have to be firm enough with the dogs because it's basically stake on legs running around out there if they're you know, behaving and someone could get hurt or animals could get hurt. But um, at the same time, there's things they often do love. Like, for example, I had a dog that loved shedding, but could get a little put off if you were working on, say, a certain type of flank or something. So I'd have to balance those things back and forth because I do a bit of shedding and then I'd go work on the flanking. And then if you looked a little dull, we'd come back. So you are, you're mixing it up and trying to keep them in the game. Because if you don't have them in the game, you don't have much, right? Yes. One of the things I like to do is I like to have my dogs kind of all look similar, even though they are not. So a lot of people say to me over the years, boy, your dogs, you can pick your dogs out. They have a similar look. Mm. So I don't always run the same lines. I, I try a lot of different lines. Um, I'm more of a trainer than a breeder. Right. I like to take the really hardcore dog that's maybe grippy and tight and bring it to center. And I bring the dog that's a little light and needs more confidence and he's not quite forward enough. And maybe I need to teach that dog to grip properly on a face. But at the end of the day, I like it to where you can't tell the difference and you wouldn't be able to tell me which dog was which. Right, right. Uh, I like to bring them all into the same center to, to look kind of similar. And I like it for people to not have any real way of going, boy, that was the hard one. And that was the, the soft one. You know, I build the soft ones up. I get the harder ones a little lighter and more responsive. And I really take a challenge in that. I work all kinds. But what's fun, the challenge is for me is fun is to, is to make them all look like they're the, the same kind of dog cool. because that's the kind I like. Right. So um, whatever it takes to get them kind of in that nice center is what I like to do. Well, ultimately, a, a good working dog, they may have slightly different styles, but generally the good work still looks similar. Sure. And we all do tend to put stamps on our dogs too, right? So oh, the good and the bad. <laughs> the good and the bad. The thing is, is if you learn to build where they're weak, you know, mm -hmm. build that as best you can. So whenever I get a young dog in the first few works, I'm noticing things that are going to be a little weak for them. For sure. And instantly I'm trying to build those with the very first things I did, just like the pup that I had in the video the other day on the single, I know where he's going to be a little weak. And so I right. want to build that sooner. I, I believe that if you let them get good at being wrong, it's harder mm -hmm. for me, the sooner you get working on where they're weak um, and try to build it in a creative in a way that's good. That's good for them. Mm -hmm. I think the, the further you are ahead, I believe that early stuff is their default. The yeah. things that they learn early. Mm -hmm. so a lot of people worry about putting left and right and stop and all those things. I could care less about that for me because putting left and right on takes two seconds. So my default in my dogs, my very first thing is it's the read of the dog properly. Yes. Um, so the first thing I'm looking at is what that dog's ability is to cover and think and rate. And when I say rate or pace, that kind of thing is 
One will not want to come into that bubble and one goes right through the bubble and could care less about the bubble. So you have to even it out, like depending on who you have, if they don't want in, I'm building, bringing it, getting it coming on in. Right. And if it's too, um, you know, too much of a defense, that's the, the defense dog to me. They, they find, you'll see them, they'll hit that line and they, they don't want to come into that space. And the next one feels no line. He just goes through there and, you know, they would, they would not rate at all. Right. And so we always joke, they will be a good shutter. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. So I, I'm, that's one of the first things I'm looking at is how do they feel right there? And if they, if they're coming f- too free in, I'm already working on getting them to think about feeling there. Right. Um, and if they don't want in, I'm building, having them come in, but that's the kind of things that I'm looking at right off. Right. And, uh, you know, so I love when I, when I put my pups on for the first times and I'm starting to see who they are. Are you an offense? Are you a defense? Are you thinking about where your heads are or are you just chasing or do we need to build, you know, that sometimes with the dogs that don't have a ton of feel and cover, I actually like to set them up for them to lose their stock so that they, they think, Whoa, Mm -hmm. if I'm not paying attention, I'm going to lose this, you know? Um, I like Absolutely. this up early. Yeah. Cool. So is there an age you like to like try them out, start them out? And are there any traits that you see that are deal breakers for you? Yeah. Well, so, you know, something that's really interesting is that I used to think I knew what deal breakers were. But now what I realize is that, um, you know, I start taking my pups. Well, sometimes I have a couple of reliable puppy raisers that do things like I like. Mm-hmm. But I, I like raising them myself too when I have time. And uh, what I like to do is take them on field trips. You know, I take them with me to the shed where I train and they need to learn to be quiet and I'll let them go once in a while. And I want them enthusiastic about going to the training pen. So there's part of that. I want them though to learn to be patient and quiet while I'm working the others. And I, they, they go back and forth with me sometimes a few times a week and then I'll let them go. And I learned this from a man that I look up to that helped me early days named Bobby Henderson from Scotland. He he had a lot of cool things that I learned, but he used to let pups go while he was working other dog and he would just ignore it. And whatever the pup did was fine. Like if the pup joined in, he would just keep it working his dog that he was working and ignore the pup. And if the pup made a mess, he just, he never paid attention. And then he, he was still working the dog that he was working. And that was a nice work too for, um, you know, that dog, that particular right. dog. But anyway, so when I'm working my pups, one of the things that I start to notice is, you know, the, the different things that are going to be a challenge. But what I do now versus get all worked up and upset about things I don't like is as long as they're trying, I've learned that it's amazing what you can overcome with training right. and helping them find what's right and build confidence. And I have had a lot of dogs that haven't had a lot of confidence, but they gain confidence through me. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of dogs that, that when they were trained, people would have thought they were a very confident dog, but actually it's, they started off not very confident, but they would try. Right. The try was amazing. So I could use that try and then build a relationship with them to make them think that they were Superman or something, you know, and they would look to me like, well, she said I can, so I must be able to. (laughs) And some of them, it was, I don't know, it's a little bit touching to me because I could say, Hey, 
you need to jump off Niagara Falls. And they'd be like, okay, hold my sign. I'm going. And they'd go because they said, well, she said I could, you know, and that's the kind of relationship I like to build. Mm -hmm. um, That's a trust thing. But point is, is that's, I can work with anything that'll try. If they're trying for me, I used to think there was all these traits um, that they needed to have, but it's amazing. I mean, yeah, there's definitely some in there I could probably pick apart, but Boy, if they have some heart and they want to try, it's amazing what they'll end up doing. For sure. I had dogs that turned out to be great cattle dogs that were really worried about biting a face. Like they were, you know, or turning a head. Mm-hmm. And um, I was able to set them up to deal with it and me being close to them and build confidence. And shoot, they ended up being some of my better work dogs. I had to use a lot of different ideas to get them up in there to learn that they could do it. Right. And once they thought they could do it, we were, we were golden. So, you know, I would rather that the dogs came out with that natural thing, you know, that, that they could do it on their own. But, but as long as they're willing to try, I love to work with them. And then later I start to decide if there's something, you know, that I feel like I would raise a litter out of that I want to go on with. So something else I was curious about was what do you think about trialing as far as we're evaluating dogs and how that plays a role relative to work. And what do you think the future of working dogs is in North America? Well, one of the things I love about trialing, I'll just be honest with you. So I came from a ranch background of using the dogs for ranch. Mm -hmm. And when I started to trial, it started to get me to look at, um, having them more precise, having them show well, upping my quality of work. I may have never got as fussy as I ended up being about them right. if I wasn't going to trial them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wish I was a better competitor. I, I'm not driven by the win, but I am driven by my dog looking well, <laughs> looking sure. correct. Yeah, I'm driven sure. by coming off the field and somebody saying, boy, that dog was really fun to watch, you know. I'm driven by that. Mm-hmm. So there's some people in this sport that are hard core competitors that are amazing under pressure. I'm not that guy. I've just missed a panel because I'm still a little upset about the bad flank my dog took <laughs> the last thing in the training part. Yep. You know, and the real competitors don't do those things. I've lost trials by being a little bit, just a little, still focusing on how did that go wrong in my training that I didn't have that ready. So anyway... The thing about it was, though, it upped my level of training to cleaning up my dogs and really thinking about them looking right at the competitions and having their brains ready for those things. So I really love trialing that for that reason. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it also like right now where I'm, you know, I've been pretty content to stay home and I'm doing a few other different things now, a little more cow dog stuff because, you know, my, cow, my roots have been in, a lot of people don't realize it but I got started in the dogs from cattle, you know? Right. So we run, you know, a lot of mother cows here and some yearlings. It's a big place and rough country. And um, I love using the dogs. Nothing's better than that. I wish I could take a few people with me on a little trip sometime around the places I go with them and get to really use them because it's a, you know, I often realize, whoa, a lot of people would just die to get to do the things I get to do with them. But um And I think the real work that also plays into my dog's um, mental soundness. Yes. A good trial dog. Mm -hmm. I I used to worry when I was trialing more about my dogs getting bored with that and being able to mix that up. 
with some real time out was really good for them. Um, yeah, I think that's really true. I think that having real work for them or trying to create at least real work if you don't yes. have real work right. is a really important part of not only the dog's development, but their soundness. Because you see dogs that just come out for training and they're, they're not even in their right mind when they arrive because they're so excited about just yes. being there that they don't get that chance to settle and learn how to use their brain and that there's a job behind what they're doing instead of just being told everything to do. Right. And yeah, I think that's a really, really great point. There's a, there's a balance of things, you know, with the trialing versus the real work. Um, I believe that a dog really needs to listen to you when you're asking them for a, you know, commands or to Mm -hmm. asking them to do something for you. But when you're not giving them one, I like to give them the job. It's a balance. When I'm, when I need something, you need to be willing to give it to me. Yep. And when I'm busy and, or I can't see it, or I, you know, uh, there's places where I want to give them the job Mm -hmm. and I want them to be able to think. And it's a really tough balance because, you know, if you teach too many commands and really have them listening perfectly, sometimes they don't want to think on their own. They get Mm -hmm. too, too happy to have you tell them. And then there's the thing where if you let them think too much on their own, they're not real willing to give it back to you. Right. So it's always a balance of trying to keep that balanced. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, like I, if I'm working on their natural stuff, I'm giving it to them that day. But at the end of a session, I'll take it back for a little while, you know, or there'll be a day when I totally take it from them. And the next day I'll totally give it to them. Right. I try to just continually look at where, where they're landing. I try to keep them willing to, to be wanting to hear me when I need them. And also when I give it back to them to have them think. And um, I feel like the real work helps that. But I also set that up in training. For sure. I think that really keeps a balanced brain. For sure. Real work is so important. I didn't get the, the stock for the dogs. You know, I started out in the 90s on a very remote ranch. And, you know, the dogs were brought in for a reason. I don't think a lot of people really realize that we were cattle ranchers, you know, because they saw me on the sheepdog scene. But basically, my background is always living on a ranch. We've pretty much always had dogs for, you know, livestock. Well, I think that's really important because... um being on a, a ranch and being around livestock like that and using dogs organically in that sense, I think is really a perspective that so many people don't have because a lot of people think from the trial perspective. And yeah. I think that brings such a wealth of information because uh, I remember working with a cattle fellow once early in my career and he, he taught me some really simple things like, for example, bring the dog in and push the livestock off the gate before you open it so you don't get killed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> Which is really good, just simple stockmanship. Yeah. But it wasn't, you know, it's a, things that a lot of people don't think about. So having that background just helps you use the dogs and train the dogs so much more yeah. completely. One of the things is though, that's kind of scary to me is that there's always going to be a lot of cattle, you know, right. but the sheep numbers are going down quickly. Right. And having the big sheepdog trials, I've hosted for, I hosted about 20, maybe 21 or two of very big tri- sheepdog trials mm-hmm. um, slash J sheepdog trial for 20 you know, years. And yep. I'd have 80 handlers p- plus, And I feel like a great sheepdog trial is giving everybody a fresh run of sheep on the first round, getting those numbers of fresh yearling 
range use is um, it's getting hard to put on the big, tough sheepdog trials. So my good friend is Julie Hansmeyer, who supplies the merinos for Meeker. We've been right. friends for 20 years, and she's bought dogs for me and learned from me to use dogs. So I often teach people that don't trial. Anyway, though, there's getting fewer and fewer of those people. Like if we lost Julie to, to bring 700 fresh yearlings to Meeker, like where would you find? I mean, if she, when she's done, I start to worry about the future of our sheepdog trials, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, um, because part of it is really testing the dogs. And, yes. you know, if you don't have the livestock to test them, then... Yeah. It's really hard to judge what we're breeding, what's going on, yes. what we're doing with the dogs. Well, you know, that's another little thing. Yeah. So I often think about, so this bothers me too. Here's another little, for, just for fun, I'll tell you. So, and I've watched this with the horses too, is that, you know, like in the quarter horse, how many breeds are in the quarter horse now? Like there's the pleasure horse, there's the cutting horse, there's the race horse, there's, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're this breed, but they're a different breed within the breed. And right. In the Border Collie, so in the early 90s, when I was working dogs, they were sort of the old-fashioned dog, like the horse that I had in in, um, junior high that we did every event on. Right. They were the all-around dog. They would work cattle and sheep, and they had a lot of brains, but they would bite if they needed to. Very sensible. Mm -hmm. Well, I thought that that was going to be there forever. Right. And fast forward 20 years, now I have a hard time finding that dog. Right. They're, they can be too light from the sheepdog side or the cowdog people are breeding them with too much bite and not enough think. Right. You know, right. so we're, instead of having that all around good solid dog that we're keeping together, I get that. I get worried about losing the breed that way mm-hmm. because I was lucky enough in the nineties. Honestly, every dog I got my hands on from all different places was a real um, solid brained for the most part. Mm-hmm. And I could work on the cattle, but I could clean them up and I could do well at sheepdog trials with them. Right. Yeah. And those are getting hard to find. You know, I think that's an interesting comment because I've heard um, this in reference to the horse world as well as the dog world is the idea of general horsemanship or general, I'll call it um, dog personship. (laughs) But the idea of that we're not so specialized that we can see the whole picture and, you know, to the same point that the the animals have more skills than just being so pigeonholed that they're almost not useful because they don't have that, and I shouldn't say not useful, but they don't have that kind of global skill set to be able to be useful in a lot of different circumstances. What the breed was really meant for, you know, Mm -hmm. they... um, they're the all they're they're the all around stock dog, a good border collie with a nice brain. You mm-hmm. know, they're they're powerful and they're they're strong with being sensible. Mm-hmm. And you know, I hate to lose those things. I hate to see it get to be. I hope that we don't end up there with. If we end up with a lot of the farm flock trials, we're going to be breeding for a lighter dog that's easier to handle on those that type of sheep. Right. And you know, it's hard to get back. It doesn't. It takes how many years did it take them to build? what was what we had right oh yeah I can't even put a number on that for sure right but it doesn't take very long to lose it for sure yeah anyway so when I'm working the dogs one of the things I do love to do is go oh I tell myself that there's one of the old-fashioned type you know that was the all-around guy that because you know every dog that I use for my ranch work here on the cattle is are the dogs that I take to the sheepdog trials right and not very many people are doing that you know 
I can't think of very many. So I'm always looking for that. And I mean, I, I love whatever they turn into. You know, mm-hmm. some of them are just going to be a good sheep trial dog sure. and some are going to be a better cow dog and some are that fit in that middle. But it's very few that fit in that middle piece anymore. Right. So anyway. Well, hopefully we'll, uh, you know, it, it is hard when things are changing. And I guess it's happening all over the world, really, because I think they talk about that in the UK as well. But with people like you out there still doing the work that you're doing, you'll be one of the advocates hanging on to that working brain. <laughs> well, I like to give them some fun stuff to look at now and then. That's why I put videos up. I get a lot of private messages with people going, boy, I love to watch that kind of stuff, you know. And So it's fun for me. Well, it's great because it does remind people what these dogs are capable of. And I think that's such an important part of maintaining the dogs is reminding people of, you know, it's not just some small little area they're running around. They're doing real work, going out on big, rough areas and able to do that kind of work. So you're so lovely and quiet when you handle and work with the dogs. Quite often, people have the impression of people yelling and (laughs) screaming, lie down at their dogs all the time. Um, But you're always so nice and quiet. And yet you're able to convey to the dogs that you, you know, mean business when you mean business. How did you develop that relationship? Because I find there's both ends of the spectrum and people have a hard time finding the balance. Like people who come in from dog sport often don't know how to get the respect of the dogs. And then sometimes other people don't know how to motivate the dogs. And you've talked a lot about motivation, how you keep the dogs excited and happy. But how do you manage to be so quiet and still have the respect of the dogs? Well, I'm going to, here's another little honesty. I have not always been this way. I, uh, <laughs> I used to get quite nervous and excited um, early days. I think sometimes we wrap ourselves up in a little bit of, uh, you know, how our dogs do is a little bit of our self-worth. Oh, 100%. Very bad, singing to the choir. I so Very agree bad with that. direction. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us have all been there. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, what I started to realize was, and it took a while, and you know, I, I, I have a friend named Haley Honeywell, and she's a tremendous trainer. And um, we've trained dogs a little bit together and a little bit similar over the years and have gotten together. And, you know, she was always better at the quiet than I was, mm-hmm. always. And so, you know, I learned a lot with the quiet from her. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I realized I had a dog in the early days named Lou and he was a phenomenal dog. And a lot of people thought he was a real tense son of a gun and not, you know, as nice as he really was. What he was, was a dog that fed off of me. Right. So what I learned from him was that when I was quiet and relaxed, which was very hard to get a hold of in those days, Mm -hmm. he was too. Right. And when I would get worked up in the finish, because he was a very powerful dog. And so he couldn't get very close to the stock. And I was always nervous coming into the finish with him. Right. And I would get tight and then I'd start to argue and I'd start to fight with him. And whenever I'd start to get nervous, worked up and fight with him, he would grip, you know? Right. And um, basically I brought it out of him, but people just thought he was that way. But if I acted like if I relaxed my body and I leaned back and I just asked him for things, he would never grip. And he was just right. Mm -hmm. So I started to look at that very closely among, you know, other things of looking at my friend Haley and different handlers that I admired. Mm -hmm. And also a thought came into my mind that when you're loud and you get upset, it seemed to fuel different wrecks that I'd have in training. <laughs> right. You know, it just threw gas on the fire. Right. 
you know, and if I could lean back and just get quieter, it seemed like it toned down, the fire didn't get as big, you know? Right. And it took years to like see those things. I, if somebody could tell you that when you're in it, but you almost have to learn it for yourself. You have to find that these, you know, panic things really don't help you. Being nervous about your runs at a trial really don't help you. One of the things about me being nervous at trials was I didn't see that. I'll tell you, I'm a very good shedder and I'm a very good, I can be a very good international shedder. But what happened to me was I'd get nervous and then I couldn't see the whole picture. Right. And then I did a lousy job. Just crazy. When I'd watch a video back, I'd be like, who is that? (laughs) But when I started to take away some of the things about the outcome and I mean, really start thinking about the mental game of really, is this going to define who I am? You know, if I don't get this just right, or if somebody doesn't think my dog is great, or if I took those things out of the equation, I started to relax. And then guess what? I could, I had pretty nice sheds then. Right. And you know, those kind of things that, but that's, that's almost like putting the miles on. You can't, I, I have people that come for help and I, I say, look, I think I can save you some time if I can convince you that if you can relax here and not worry about things, every little thing, um, your dogs will respond better and, you know, you'll do better. But it's hard to convince that until you've lived it. For sure. The other thing is, is just back to another horse theory, is that you don't put a big bit in your horse right off. You put a light snaffle bit and you know, if you start loud and you start being really hard on them, you have nowhere to go. Right. Exactly. You have no more tools. You're at, you're at the biggest, you get into the biggest bit right off and you've got nowhere to go. I like my dogs light and soft. And I'll tell you what's happened is I've got my dogs almost too light and soft for some people. Right. That's like putting them on a really, really light horse. That's really well trained that, you know, I like my dogs to be listening for me and be really light in their feel and, you know, that kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. um, that comes with having them listen for you. Not if you get loud, one of the other things is, is, I mean, it's obvious the louder you get, the less they want to hear you, you know, and the more you (laughs) nag at them. True people too. (laughs) Yes. I mean, they don't want to hear that. I mean, they want to hear what you want, not, not you yelling and upset with them and, the easiest thing to do really I found is to just ask them for what you want and then give a light, give them a correction so that they understand what you want and then move on without all the, without all the loud stuff. Yeah. All the histronics. You know, it's interesting you say that because one of the toughest things I think I went through, and I think we learn it each time around, hopefully you go through the cycle each time a little bit faster is when I went through basketball and then dog agility and then came into sheep dogging, my ego would get involved at some point in that cycle and then I'd kind of move past it. And then, you know, you get into the next thing and you're a learner, you're all excited, then you want to do better, then your ego gets involved and then you get past it and then you get on to, like, it's like this cycle you keep going through. Like you said, as you get experience, hopefully, you know, you get past it or you get past it faster than the time before. But, you know, coming into the sheepdog world, I was still coming off basketball and dog agility where everything's fast, competitive, you know. Right. And so it was really hard to your point, getting into the shed or the pen times going, you know, ticking down and I'm moving into competitor mode, like, and half the time creating a worse disaster because I'm trying to speed everything up, you know? So it is funny. It's that lesson that you keep learning over and over and over to get your self-worth out of it, get your ego out of it. 
and just keep answering the dog's questions and helping them. That is, that is right. You know, now I just, this, this is the truth. If you have your dog right, you're going to end up somewhere at the top. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. if your dog works right, that's what I tell myself now. Mm-hmm. You know, in school, I was terrible. I think I mentioned that. <clears throat> and I didn't want to take the test because, you know, I didn't study for them. And <laughs> I was just terrible. <laughs> right. And, and now the way I feel about it is if you study for the test, you want to take the test because you feel like you have the answers. Right. Now, with dogs, it's kind of like, well, you know, I've done my homework and I feel pretty good about them. Now, when I take them somewhere, what I'm going to do is I'm not afraid to take the test. And that gives me some confidence. But also, it is another kind of test because they're going to show me where I'm weak or where they're weak or what I've missed that I can go home and clean up. So even if something goes wrong, I'm going to use that to my, my benefit. So I just look at things differently. Like now I, I'm, I look forward, like, you know, my smart friend was always looking forward to test day. Right. I was dreading it. But, but what I've realized is if you've, if you've done your homework, you enjoy the test. Absolutely. And that's kind of where I am now. When I take my young dogs out, that's what I, you know, I, I've done most of the things that I feel I need to go and run. And I feel, and then sometimes I'll go and run and I'll be like, and I love it because, of the, oh, I've missed that. You know, I need to have that stronger because when I go away and I show up someplace else, um, this is where they're weak. And so I go back home and work on it. Yeah. This year, you know, every year I go to Meeker. Oh, I, I think the other day I counted up for fun. My friend and I were counting up um, over the years. I've gone to Meeker with um, 13 different dogs. Wow. And, yeah. And most of the time when I go there, they're two-year-olds. I run the, my nursery dogs almost always in the open. And I've, I've won a lot with them, you know, at, over the years at Meeker and those hard trials with my young dogs. Mm-hmm. And um, this year I went with a couple and um, I wasn't preparing them for Meeker like I should. Um, and I went, I thought, you know, I love that trial. I'm going to go run anyway. And I'm just going to see where I'm weak. And, and it certainly showed. But, um, you know... Those are the kind of things, you know, a lot of times I have them ready. I knew they weren't ready, but I wasn't real worried. So I decided to go to the thing. Well, let's see what they need for the next year. Right. And um, I came away with that. I use my young dogs probably younger than a lot of people. And people say often, well, she puts too much pressure on them. I hear that one. And, you know, that's okay. Uh, What I actually do, though, is I build them to like the pressure. I build them to thrive on the things I'm asking them. I, I feel like my dogs thrive on being challenged mm-hmm. and I don't look at them as being pressured. I, when I spot one that's being pressured or feel like one of mine's looking pressure, I go a different direction, you know, right. either it's a break or it's something that, like I said, to bring them back. Right. Um, you can also teach dogs to, to, you know, accept pressure. And a lot of people go, boy, to get them to take them to Meeker. And, you know, I've won go-arounds at Meeker. And I, I was reserve um, champion at Meeker with one of my nursery dogs. And, you know, but basically they thrive on the challenge. And that's, right. I think that's when you see a young dog that thrives on the challenge, um, you're, go, you're not going to have a problem with those dogs. You, you know, uh People have also said one of the things that people like to think is that if you push them hard young, they won't make it in an open dog, that they will not make a good open dog. But that's not true either, because I have 
dogs that I ran it and won a lot with young soldier hollow and meeker, you know, I was reserved at soldier hollow too with a, and you know, that dog is still thriving. Right. Yeah. It, I think it's all in, in how you perceive, you know, those things there's challenging them and them thriving. And then there's pressure. Right. And balancing all those things, because to the point, a working dog needs to learn to face pressure because certainly we know the livestock can put a tremendous amount of pressure on them. So they need to learn to be able to handle a certain amount of pressure. And I think that's kind of the art of the dog training. I often use the phrase swinging the pendulum, but recognizing each individual dog where they're at and when they're ready for it and when you need to take it off. And that's really the trick of the training, isn't it? It's that idea. I think being able to put them on stock that leans on them and have them comfortable with that is a very big deal too. Mm-hmm, for sure. You know, right. And so that's one of the things that I'm blessed to be able to do here is put them on stock that's going to challenge them and lean on them. And, um, you know, when they're very accustomed to that, things just get easier for them. For sure. And then being able to make sure they can listen. You'll see somebody with a dog and the dog is really struggling with the stock and they won't listen. Right. And they'll come back and we'll be talking and they'll say, boy, my dog won't listen. And I said, well, he was busy. He was struggling. He felt like he was struggling for his life right there. And right. he's like, I'll have to get back to you in a minute because right now <laughs> I'm, I'm struggling here. I, I'll have to see you in a minute, you know, like, and I laugh about that, but that is part of the prep too, but in a different sure. way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's a great, great observation or analogy, a way of putting it is, you know, people do think the dog's not listening to them, but to your point, they're, they're busy. <laughs> they are really worried and they can't. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're wrapped up in the, the stocks leaning on them and, and then they have to be able to get right with themselves and feel comfortable. They can't let go. They're like, if I let go, I've worked so hard and now I can't, I can't, I, I can't let go because I'm struggling. And so that's the way I, I say that to people. And the response I get back is, oh, I never thought about that, you know. Wow. Right now, the stock are laying on them and they, they're having a hard time just holding them in, in the dog's mind, you know. Yeah, for sure. Well, you are just an absolute wealth of information. I just can't believe how lucky I feel to have sat here and talked with you. I mean, this has just been absolutely amazing. Um, is there any last thing that you want to say to everyone, just a last point or tip or comment that you want to make to just help people? Well, you know, when people are getting into this with the dogs, the best thing you can do is find somebody that you look up to and you like their style. There's a lot of ways to train dogs and, and I'm open to that as long as it works for the person. The thing is, <clears throat> I think if a person will pick somebody and stay with it, it's much easier on them mm. and the dogs. You can learn things at different clinics and different lessons but if you change things too much, like, oh, you try something for a week and then you go to the next things and you keep changing things, you know, sometimes it takes a little bit for a dog to find something and then you want to do it enough to where they really know what, what it is. And my best advice is to stay with a solid thing that feels right to you, to not confuse you and your dog and get a method and research the people that you learn from and make sure it's a, it's a fit for you. There's a lot of good trainers out there, um, but just finding the style that fits you mm-hmm. is, is what I recommend and staying with it. I think that's such a great piece of advice because especially for people who are more novice, they don't have foundation to take different pieces and put them together because 
they don't understand how they work underneath, so to speak, and they don't know how it all fits together. They need to have a clear picture. And then if you start mixing different ideas in, it just gets to be a jumbled picture. And I think it takes longer to get there doing that. Yeah. I think that's a great piece of advice. Thank you so much for your time. I just love you. You're amazing. I love watching you work and thank you for doing this. I've enjoyed the morning with you. I so appreciate it. And thank you for listening to the Kathy Keat Show. Make sure to follow Joni on Facebook. You can find her at facebook.com slash JL Titchen, which is T-I-E-T-J-E-N. And uh, you'll be able to see some of her amazing videos. And I'll also put a link for that in the um, show notes as well. We've got some exciting guests coming up. Jennifer Crank, the fantastic agility competitor, is coming up in the next episode. Also make sure to drop by kathykeats.com slash support the show. Whether you'd like to buy me a coffee or you would like to give me some input on guests that you would like to see come on the show. Take care until next time.